Now we've spent some time going through First Chronicles, and First Chronicles really match, matches up really with First uh, and Second Samuel, and then now that we're getting into the Second uh, Chronicles, that really matches up with First Kings and Second Kings. And the wonderful thing about Chronicles is that it's not so much because it's written from a priest, and we believe that Ezra uh, may have been may have been the author of this book. And uh, he was certainly qualified. We know that he was a priest and he was a scribe. He was expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and uh, God's statutes. And so we believe that First and Second Chronicles were really compiled, if you will, by Ezra uh, sometime after the Babylonian captivity, after they had, uh, before they even had come back, or uh, don't know exactly when that happened, but it was sometime after the Babylonian captivity. Perhaps as the Jews were coming back into the land, it was good for them to be reminded of their history because God had told them that if they would follow him and stay true to him and follow his commandments, that he would bless them. There would be blessings that God would give them uh, for being faithful to his commandments. And, um, and as we know, Israel didn't do so well, and they failed miserably. And uh, as, as we will see at the end of this book, and we, we already saw this when we got in the end of Second Kings, but Second uh, Kings is uh, sort of like uh, very similar to what we're getting into now in Chronicles, First and Second Kings, that is. And so... Um, and it was compiled by very a number of sources, uh, many of which are not uh, with us today. We don't have those scriptures. We know in Chronicles it tells us in First Chronicles chapter nine that um, it says that so all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. And we have those books. We have the kings of Judah and Israel. And uh, we looked at those already, First and Second Kings. In Second Chronicles, it, men- it makes mention in chapter 12, verse 15, that the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, and of Iddo, the seer? So these books we don't have available to us. And that doesn't bother me because God gives us exactly what we needed. And um, God saw fit that they weren't really necessary because we have everything we need in First uh, in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And there were many other sources that the Chronicles were pulled from, uh, 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 compiled from information. The books of the annals of King David, the annals of the kings of Israel, the records of Samuel the seer. Um, now we have Samuel. I don't know if it's the same book or not. Uh, it may not be. Uh, Nathan the prophet, the, refer- uh, the records of Gad the seer. So many different uh, sources came into this. Um, and as we get into this book, the first nine chapters are devoted to Solomon while the kingdom was still united. Remember, uh, God gave to Israel Saul, their first king, and then uh, David uh, superseded him. And then uh, Solomon would be the next king. And and through those three kings, 
uh, Judah and uh, the northern ten tribes, all of Israel was united. It's often referred to as the United Kingdom. But after Solomon passed away, his son Rehoboam and his general Jeroboam ended up, the, the kingdom divided and split. And uh, Jeroboam took and was king over the northern ten tribes and Rehoboam was king over the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And it has been that way uh, from that moment onward. And, and there's coming a day, and I'm looking forward to this, when God will bring all of Israel together, and we'll find this in the millennial reign. He will bring them all together, and they will all be one. And we, the church, will also be there in that millennial reign of Christ. But chapters 1 through 9 are speaking specifically of Solomon, and then chapters 10 through the end of 36 really just gives us a chronicle of the Judean kings. It doesn't really talk about the Israeli kings in the north because Chronicles is not concerned about what happened in the north because the northern kingdom, they were the first ones to go into captivity in Assyria and they were wicked kings. And unfortunately, most of the kings of Judah were also wicked, but we find that there were a handful that were faithful, people like Hezekiah and Josiah and others, and, and they were faithful to God, and they were what we call reformer kings, because as Judah began to look at her sister in the north and, and, and continued in the idolatry that the northern ten tribes did, they really didn't learn anything. And we know that because even after the northern ten tribes were taken captive by Syria as a punishment for their idolatry and their whoredoms, that you'd think that the southern two tribes would have paid attention, but they didn't. And they continued in the same sins that their neighbors from the north did, their brothers. And God warned them, sending prophets night and day, rising up early, telling them to repent of their sin, and they didn't. And finally, God did bring judgment upon them. Now, in Second Chronicles, uh, again, the chronicler continues to show this great line of the Judean kings, which in turn, it reveals God's plan of redemption, not only uh, through, through David, but through Solomon and, um, and to the greater than David and Solomon, reaching all the way to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, because Jesus was from the line of Judah. He came from the line of David. This had been prophesied for hundreds and even a few thousand years by this point. And, um, and the, again, the importance of the Davidic covenant as we begin this Second Chronicles, again, the first nine chapters are nothing, about, nothing but Solomon and his reign. And this is part of God's covenant that he had given to David long ago. We call it the Davidic covenant. And let me just read uh, just uh, that covenant. It's really short. It's, in, it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm just going to begin in verse 12 just to kind of whet your appetite. It's, uh, so God is speaking through Nathan the prophet to tell to um, Solomon, uh, or to David, excuse me. He says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Now we know that, that in the immediate it would be Solomon, but what the Lord is speaking to David here is that through Solomon and through that unbroken uh, chain uh, of command, that dynasty, that unbroken dynasty, all the way down from David, all the way down to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and even beyond that through that line the Messiah would come. And that's why those genealogies 
and Matthew and Luke are so important. Because it, it, it shows that lineage from, from going all the way back from Adam to David and then from David all the way until Jesus Christ. On, da- on David's mother's side, Mary, and on her, his um, caretaker, really, uh, Joseph, on his side too. They were both from the line of Judah. And so he does, when, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Really speaking, Again, in the immediate, certainly Solomon, but prophetically in the long range, Jesus Christ. He says, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And certainly Solomon would build a house for the Lord's name. And we know that in the millennial reign, Jesus is going to build another temple. And it's going to be much bigger than anything we've ever seen before. But notice, he goes on in verse 14. I will be his father, God says, and he shall be my son. Certainly speaking of Solomon, but even more importantly to Jesus. And now he's really speaking of Solomon because he says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, and whom I remove, whom I remove from before you. And your house and your kingdom. Notice, now, he know, now we know that he's not really speaking about Solomon because Solomon only lived for 70 years. And so now the Lord is speaking of David's dynasty going way into eternity, really. He says, and your house and your kingdom, meaning the line of David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so it's speaking of the long haul. And the only one who's going to live forever is Jesus. Well, all of us with him, but he will be seated on the throne. And, um, and as we go through Second Chronicles, remember that it's recalling the history and the events that we've already covered in First Kings, uh, starting in chapter 3 and onward, but specifically concerning the kings of Judah. So let's look at uh, verse 1 here in Second in Chronicles chapter 1. He says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And this time of the reign of Solomon could be considered the golden age for Israel because all their enemies at this point would be subdued. The temple was about to be built. Remember, David had provided all the materials, the blueprint, all the workers. He provided everything. And Israel was in this wonderful age And I think this time of Solomon's reign was what many call the golden age of Israel. It's only going to be, it's going to be even better than that in the millennial reign. But there has never been a period of time that Israel has enjoyed like they did right here. It was an incredible, incredible time. Because all their enemies would be subdued, the temple would be built, and the people would have rest. It's going to be an awesome time, but not without its problems, not without its issues. And so verse 2, it says, And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses. And then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness." So it's important to understand this place, Gibeon. And Gibeon is located 
about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. So here is Jerusalem, and just going up right to here was Gibeon, and this was the place where the um, Moses's tabernacle and all of the other elements, the furniture in the tabernacle was there except for one important piece, the most important part. And what was that? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, David had brought into Jerusalem, right? By this time. Remember earlier in his reign, it's the first thing he did was bring the Ark of the Covenant from uh, Kirjath-Jerim, from Obed-Edom's house. He brought it into Jerusalem. David uh, there in, uh, in Zion, he, where his palace was, he built a tent for the tabernacle, or I'm sorry, for the Ark of the Covenant, excuse me, and evidently an altar as well, because we know that he did sacrifices at this location. So verse 4, but David had brought up the Ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. And there are a couple places in the scripture that tell us that that's indeed what he did. And let me just read them to you, and you can uh, go check them out. They're worth noting. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17, that they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It also records that in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. But going on now in verse 5, it says, Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, or Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought him there. So uh, it's interesting because concerning this bronze altar, uh, I think the NIV appears to clarify its location because it sounds like it might be there in uh, uh, in Jerusalem or something, but it's not. It says that the bronze altar, this is uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 5, says, but the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur had made, was in Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired from there. So in the NIV, it makes it very clear where that altar of Bezalel was because um, they were to do sacrifices in Gabeon at the high place, in this place that's just a little bit north, um, uh, northwest of Jerusalem. But during this time, um, all of those furnishings from Moses' tabernacle was there in Gabeon. And, um, and David, evidently, when he brought the ark into Jerusalem, he also built an altar there, probably right next to the Ark of the Covenant or somewhere nearby because it says that he did offer sacrifices and he didn't go to Gabeon to do it. So he had to have built another altar. Really not a big deal. It's just, if you're like me, I, 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 I like to think about where these things are located. It helps me understand uh, why they would go to Gabeon to worship. Why would they go there? Why don't they just do everything in Jerusalem? Well, the temple hadn't been built in Jerusalem yet. Solomon was getting ready to build it. It wasn't ready yet. And so they would still, like it says here, that Solomon and the people went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because that's where the great altar was. That's where the altar that Bezaliel, this really wonderfully skilled man that God brought into Moses' uh, sphere of influence there. And he was a very talented man, an incredible artisan. And he made that altar uh, specifically the way God wanted it to. 
And so verse 6, it says, And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar, this altar of Bezaliel in Gibeon, before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Think about that, folks. A thousand burnt offerings. You know, we, we, don't, we often don't think about how serious of a thing this is. Because when an animal is sacrificed, you know, it's easy for us to be far removed from that. But when you see the throat of a, of a, of a sheep getting cut, and you see it bleeding out, and what they have to do to prepare it for the, for the offerings, it'll change your mind about sin. <laughs> or at least it should. And it was supposed to, because that was an innocent animal that, was, that God allowed to be sacrificed instead of you. Right? It was a, a, an atonement. Uh, um, that animal was in your place. And so that brings a lot of gravity to it when you see it. And I've seen a lamb being sacrificed. And it's the hardest thing you'll ever see. I mean, it's very clinical. I mean, um, but, the, but the animal does bleed to death. And then they... They, t- they cut it up and they put it in its right places and pieces and then they, al- they offer it on the altar. And, and this is not easy to see. And this is something the Jews would certainly remember as they considered, well, this is what I deserve. But God has given us this sacrificial system, another to take my place. And who was the one who took the place for all? Jesus. Right? That's why he's so wonderful, because the very blood of God, that no, unlike any other thing in the world, the very blood of God atoned for your sin and for my sin. But notice, on that night, when, Moses, or excuse me, when Solomon had offered those burnt offerings, on that night, God appeared to Solomon. And he said to him, ask, what shall I give you? And so this is the first appearance of the Lord to Solomon, it's recorded for us in also in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. And God would appear to Solomon a second time, but this is the first time. And notice what God said, ask, and what shall I give you? It was in a, um, evidently in a, in a dream. And how would you respond if God asked you this question? If God came to you and gave you a blank check, he wrote the date on it and signed his name, and he says, whatever you want, what would you do? Solomon could have done many things. You know, it's interesting because Solomon, by this time, he'd been given all the materials to build the temple, the blueprints, the help, everything, and now, give, and now God gives to Solomon this seemingly blank check. And, you know, God really loved Solomon. He really loved him. And Solomon started off very well. And this is a real warning. As we get into Chronicles, we're, we're going to see some of these things. Um, and we've already looked at them, actually, in First and Second Kings. But it's, a, it's an awful thing. He didn't, he didn't end well, but then the Lord brought him back to himself, I believe, at the end of his life, and he recanted or repented of those things. So Solomon said to God, he says, you've shown great mercy to David, my father, and you've made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, 
Let your promise to David. Now, we've already read the promise, haven't we? The Davidic covenant. I read that to you in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16, whatever it was. Actually, that's what it was. Uh, but that promise, he says, You've shown, uh, now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. In other words, keep your word, God, because God cannot do anything but keep his word. He can't lie. He knows everything. He has no reason to say something and then not do it. When God says he's going to do something, he has everything in his power to make it happen very easily. He's not limited, not even by us. Let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude. And this promise it was amazing. We already looked at it. And then verse 10, it says, Now give me wisdom. And here is what Solomon desired. God gave him a blank check and Solomon wrote on the line, wisdom and knowledge to to rule your people. (laughs) That's what he did. He says, now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? Notice whose people they belong to. They didn't belong to Solomon. He was the king. God allowed him to be king over his people, but the people belonged to him. And, and, and Solomon was very wise. And he says, I don't need money. I mean, he was a very young guy at this time, too. He's probably looking around going, you know, I really don't need any more money, Lord. But what I really need, and I beg you for, is for wisdom and knowledge, because there's a lot of people coming to me with questions, and they want to know answers, and I've got nothing, unless you do something. And see... Um, Lesser men uh, perhaps would have asked for even greater wealth, but Solomon understood the weight of his responsibility. He understood the weight of the accountability before the Lord and before the people of God. And at this time, Solomon was very small in his eyes, just like David, his father. David was small in his own eyes, and that's why God could use a man like David. That's why God could use a man like Solomon. They, they didn't see themselves as God's answer to the church. They didn't see themselves as God's gift to humanity. They saw themselves as bankrupt, but for the grace of God, right? And so, and happy is the man or woman, regardless of how wealthy or famous they get, to have a heart of humility like David and Solomon. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than gold or silver. Proverbs 22, verse 4 says, By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And see, that's the kind of heart, the kind of attitude that Solomon had. And he had his father as an example. Verse 11, then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. And you know, this answer of Solomon was a direct hit to the heart of God a direct hit right in his heart because Solomon wasn't greedy 
And he put the people of God over any of his desires that he might have had. And see, that's the mark of a good leader. That's a good shepherd. He puts uh, himself last, and he puts others before him. Verse 12, it says, wisdom and knowledge, are, and notice what God says to him, wisdom and knowledge are granted. They're given to you, Solomon. Notice that God says it in the past tense because God had already done it and Solomon hadn't even been aware of it yet. But God had already given him everything that he needed and all he had to do is just grow and step out in faith and God would supply him everything he needs. Wisdom and knowledge I have granted you and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have ever, whoever before you, nor shall there be any after you that, that, that will be the like. And this would include any kings of our modern age too. There was no one as wealthy as Solomon. He had more riches than anybody else in the entire world, more than Elon Musk and more than, um, you know, whoever. It doesn't really matter. But Solomon, in the Old Testament, he put a New Testament principle in action, didn't he? And what is that principle in the New Testament? Well, it tells us in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, right? What does it tell us in verse 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. So we see, and it's the same spirit of God, do you understand, that was working in the heart of Solomon, that was working in the life of the disciples. And so as Jesus is sharing this uh, in the Beatitudes, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about your food and shelter and the clothing and everything like that. I'll take care of all that. But you seek first the kingdom of God. And that is a great challenge for us today because most of us are trying to just make ends meet and trying to save up for the future in case things go crazy. And, and, and sometimes you feel like you're just like this hamster in the wheel and God's saying, Relax. I've got you covered. You may not have everything you want. If everything goes to kaput someday, we don't know. We can't see the, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We know the big things that are going to happen. Thank God he's given us that. But God says, you just seek my face. You seek first the kingdom of God and all that other stuff that you need that I know you need. I will take care of. And do you understand that that's a promise of God? That's a promise. You may not get the fancy toys that you like, but you will get what you need. And you know, as I get older, I don't need all the fancy toys. I really am. I'm, I'm, I, even if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't be one of these guys who would have a jet ski and have all these toys around. Because you know what? I can't maintain those things. I've got enough already that I'm trying to maintain. I don't need a lot of other things to maintain. I want to enjoy what I have and to take care of it the best I can. But seek first the kingdom of God. So Solomon is already putting this into practice. So Solomon, verse 13, came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gabeon. So he's coming from Gabeon, coming now down south from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. And Solomon, verse 14, gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Now, isn't this interesting? Solomon would have chariot cities where there would be horses and horsemen and chariots stationed. 
And Megiddo is one of these chariot cities. There were a few other chariot cities, but Megiddo is one of them. And if you go to Israel at some point, you will see this very place that Solomon had, had chariot cities. Or he had a chariot city in Megiddo. And the stalls are still there. They're, they're broken down. You can only see the remnants of them. But archaeologists have discovered that that's exactly what those things were for. And it was up in the northern part of Israel. You get to walk in those stables where those horses used to be. It's really quite exciting because it, it just brings this right to life. And the Bible doesn't lie. As they continue to dig in, in the Middle East or in Jerusalem or in Israel, they're finding all this stuff. And it's just exactly what is written here. Right? So, can you trust the Word of God? I think you can. I think you can trust the Word of God. Right? And also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowlands. And it's recorded later in time, and it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. It says this, that the weight of gold that came to Solomon every year was 666 talents of gold. Yes, the mark of the beast. 666 talents of gold, besides that from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from the countries of Arabia, from the countries, uh, the governors of the country. So Solomon brings in all this money. And Solomon had horses, notice verse 16, imported from Egypt and Kiva. And the king's merchants bought them in Kiva at the current price. And they also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Assyria. So now, Solomon is not only gaining chariots and horses for his own army, but now he's got so much that he's exporting them and selling them to other countries. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound like something that Solomon should have been doing? No, it's not. In fact, the, the, I mean, God gave him great wealth already. He gave him great wealth. But he amassed even more and more and more and more. And he had the chariots and all the horses because their enemies had them. And what happens when you have the same weaponry as your enemy? You're no longer really relying on God. You're just kind of evening the score, so to speak. And no longer would the children of Israel rely on God so much as they would rely on their armaments. They do that today. They've got a great military. Probably the, one of the best military in the world. And that's why the enemies of Israel right now are getting pounded. They kept poking Israel in the eye and they're going to get it. And they're getting it. And hopefully they will root out the terrorists. Notice what I said. Not the people, the innocents. I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the terrorists themselves and destroying their infrastructure and rooting them out. Uh, they got it coming. And Israel is doing it. But there's something about this. Solomon acquiring all this stuff. because, And you might want to write in the margin of your Bible... This reference, because it's important. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And let me just read to you verses 14 through 20, because as I read it, you're going to start thinking to yourself, Oh, Solomon, what are you doing? I thought God gave you wisdom. He did give him wisdom, but there was something uh, in Solomon, a rebellion, 
And it would be a, uh, it would be a harbinger, if you will, uh, a foreshadowing of what would happen to him. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, and this was the principles governing kings. So this is when Moses, uh, God gave these things to Moses before the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River. Before they crossed over, remember, they were on this side of the Jordan River, right up around here, and then they went across here into the promised land. And so before they crossed over, God is telling them when they get settled and they have a king, when they request a king, this is what they need to do. And it says, when you come into the land, verse 14, which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and, I, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, is that prophetic of what really happened? It really is, because God's telling them in advance what they're going to do, and that's exactly what they did. And he says, you will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Uh, From one among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So they wanted a king so bad, God says, okay, you want a king? I'm going to give you a king, but it's got to be from one of your brethren. And then he goes on, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. There it is. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. And is that what he did? Yes, he did. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Did Solomon do that later in his reign? Yes, he did. He had a thousand wives, actually 700 wives and 3,000 or 300 concubines. I think more than two wives more than one, is, God is enough. One, one is supposed to be good. So you shall, you shall not have multiplied wives for himself, lest his heart, notice, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold to himself. So all of these things that Solomon is doing, God had warned about hundreds of years prior. And he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he sh- that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart, notice, that his heart, may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So in all of this, we see a foreshadowing of Solomon's rebellion, written God prophesying of it hundreds of years in advance. Because this was back in Deuteronomy, back when they, were, they weren't even in the land yet. And God is saying, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it did happen. I'm sure that Solomon didn't read this and go, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be a bad boy. I don't think he did that. I just think life took over, natural things happen, and next thing you know, to build up his kingdom, he's getting horses and chariots, and God has blessed him with wisdom and wealth, so you know, he's just amassing all this stuff and thinking it's going to be okay. And even the wives, and we'll see later on that that was one of his great downfalls. But as a result of these things, we're going to see that God will tear away the kingdom out of Judah's hand and cause the kingdom to split after his death. And the same truth applies today. The same truth applies today as it did back then, and it's this. Whatever a man sows, 
that he shall also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And see, no one is exempt from that truth. Solomon wasn't exempt from that truth. Paul was not exempt from that truth. None of us are exempt from that truth. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now as we get into chapter 2 here, what we have in chapter 2 is a correspondence between Hiram, the king of Tyre, and Solomon. Basically, they're writing letters back and forth to one another. They didn't have texting back then. I think of how easy that would have been. Hey, can you send me those uh, artisans that you've got? Hey, can you send me a bunch of those nice logs from Lebanon and, and throw them in the sea and float them down to Joppa and we'll pick them up and, care, and bring some of your guys. And by the way, I'm going to give you all this food as, as, a, as a barter between the two of us. Let me know what you think. Thanks. <laughs> you know, and a little bubble shows up on, you know, Hiram's, you know, iPhone. <gasps> wow. And then the next day it starts to happen. No, nothing happened like that quickly. They sent letters. It took time. But notice, then Solomon determined, verse 1, to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. And Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens. I guess so. If you're going to build a temple and you need all of the rock quarried and cut and you need all of the timber and all of the precious stones mined from the hills, you need a lot of laborers. You need a lot of guys who can carry things. So 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains alone, and 3,600 bosses over all these people. And then Solomon sent, sent to king, Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, uh, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Now Hiram, uh, his kingdom was in the north, uh, in, in what you and I would call modern day Lebanon. So right here, uh, right north, uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just south of the Leontes River is this city called Tyre. And this is where Hiram was located, where his capital city was. If you were to look at, at Apple Maps today, you can see even in a, a modern map that Tyre is right here. They spell it differently, T-Y-R, but it's clearly in this area of Lebanon right here. And, um, and Beirut is up here. And so these, this is the location of where Solomon is asking uh, for Hiram, the king of Tyre, to send him these cedars and all of this material and to, and to have men come and help him with the artisans and the people that he already has because he needs a lot of help to do this. And evidently David had such a wonderful relationship with Hiram as well. And we're going to see that for a Phoenician uh, that Tyre, uh, that Hiram was, uh, they were typically polytheistic. They believed in many gods, but Hiram, as we're going to see when he writes back to Solomon, he makes some pretty outstanding uh, declarations about God. And I wonder if through David's interaction with this king, that if Hiram became a believer as well. And I think you'll see that it's very possible that he was. So notice in verse 3, So Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with my father David, send and sent him cedars to build himself a house, do so with me. And it reminds me 
of a proverb in chapter 16, verse 7. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Now, Hiram wasn't certainly an enemy by this time. It wouldn't be until later that they would... Um, uh, there wouldn't be a friendship between those two nations after these men had passed on. Um, but, um, but there was a friendship between uh, David and, and Hiram, and now between Hiram and Solomon. So verse 4, behold, he says, I am building, and so Solomon is in this letter, he's writing, behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord of Jehovah, my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn sweet incense before him for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings, morning and evening, on the Sabbath, on the new moons, on the set feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple, verse 5, which I will build, will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. And think about that. <laughs> he's basically saying, uh, I, you know, evidently this man must have been a believer because he's saying our God is greater than all gods. And no offense, Hiram, but any other people, other gods that you guys serve up there, our God is bigger and better, and he's better. And that's just the bottom line. And um, I kind of like that, don't you? Are, are, are you willing to boast about God? I mean, we don't have to be that saucy, you know, like I'm, like I'm being, but you know what? We serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We serve the one who spoke it all into existence. He is Almighty God. That's who we serve. There's no other gods. Any other god, lowercase g, is nothing but a demon that people serve, but there's only one God. Seriously, all the world religions, they worship different things. These are all demonic entities, but there's only one who is the creator of all things. And that's the one we serve. Folks, you're on a winning team. We, we should have jerseys that just say, you know, 777 Jesus, you know. Perfect every time. Right? Touchdown every single time. He can throw the ball behind him and it will go forward and make a touchdown. I mean, that's how perfect he is. We can boast on our God, on our God, Jesus Christ. Don't you love him? Don't you want to exalt him and love him? Yes. And notice the witness of Solomon in these couple of verses to this other king, you know. And, um, but Solomon was telling the truth. He was boasting about God, but he was telling the truth. Everything that he said was true. And don't be afraid to exalt and boast in the Lord, because when you do, you are telling the truth. And notice Solomon was respectful. And we're going to see his tact in just a moment, but he was being honest and truthful. And we can be honest and truthful too. And we should. But notice verse 6, but he who is able, but who is able Solomon says, to build him a temple since heaven and, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Yes, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. We see this when Paul, the apostle, in Acts chapter 17 in verse 22, as Paul was standing before the men of Athens on what we call uh, Areopagus or Mars Hill, He's speaking to these very intellectual men. And Paul stood and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. 
God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Do you see that? The very thing that Solomon had said back here, Paul the Apostle is now sharing in the first century in Athens at a very high fluting place on Mars Hill, sharing the same exact thing. And one of the hallmarks of a good leader is humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Is it possible to be humble and yet be boasting in God? Yes, it is. Therefore, verse 7, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver. Now, did Solomon have men skilled in gold and silver? He did, but he needed more than one. God had given him a few. He said, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and in iron, in purple and crimson and blue, who has skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided Also, send me cedars and cypress and algum trees or algum logs from Lebanon. So these types of, of trees were very prolific in Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon, there's none like them in all the world. And so, you know, Solomon wanted those trees. Send me the cedar and the cypress, the algum logs from Lebanon. And notice... For I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and indeed my servants will be with your servants. Notice again the humility here and the diplomacy. Because Solomon is just being very honest with this king, this friend of his dad's. Telling him the truth about who God is. Yes, he's the God of gods, the great God. There's only him. But by the way, you guys are really good at what you do. And because I'm creating this great place for our God, I want the very best. And I know some of you guys are the very best. You know what you're doing, and we need you. Would you come? And what humility? And what diplomacy? You know, Solomon wasn't demanding and being mean and nasty. He was like, you know what? There's, there's no one like you guys, and we really need your help. Notice, to prepare timber for me in abundance, for the temple which I'm about to build shall be great and wonderful. And it would be one of the great wonders of the world when it was completed. Verse 10, and indeed I will give to your servants, notice, the woodsmen who cut timber, I will give them 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. So what was happening here? It was a barter system, wasn't it? You send these men to give us what we need, and we're going to supply you with an abundance of food. And that's exactly what happened. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in writing. So he writes, he gets this letter from Solomon. He writes back, sounds great, Solomon. (laughs) Notice what he says. Hiram answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon. Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Notice the gracious words of this man, who no doubt was, his heart was, I believe, smitten because David had been such a great witness to this man. Their friendship had been so great. Notice the words of this guy as I continue and wonder. It sounds, this, it sounds like a man who knows God. Hiram also said, Blessed be Jehovah God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. Hmm, that's interesting. 
For he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And so, um, looking at this letter, it seems to me that Hiram uh, may have been a believer himself. And now I have sent, notice, past tense. (laughs) And now I have sent a skillful man, endowed with wisdom, Huram, my master craftsman. So he didn't just send a skillful man, but Hiram sent Huram, his master craftsman. The guy who was just the, had it all together, just a really wonderful man. He had all the DeWalt drills and all the bits and all that stuff, and he knew how to, you know, hang drywall, and he could do everything and quick and, and really wonderfully. And uh, so he sent his own master craftsman. And it says, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan and his father was a man of Tyre, skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine linen and crimson, and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. Wow, what respect. What a great man this man was. Now, therefore, the wheat, the barley, the oil, and the wine which my Lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants. So, all right, we got a deal. So send those things, and we're gonna, we're, we've already sent uh, men down with you. And we will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need, and we will bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, and you will carry it up to Jerusalem. So just to kind of get an idea of what this might look like. Um, So these men are going to cut the logs up here in Tyre, and what they would do is they would cut the trees down, they would cut off all the branches, and they would have the big logs, and they would cut it in sections, and then they'd put it on floats or on barges, and then they would float those things down the coast of the Mediterranean all the way down until Joppa, and then they would take those things from there and then they would bring them into Jerusalem. And that's the direction that they had done. And then Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel. These aliens would be people who were not uh, indigenous to Israel, but from the outer lands, uh, Gentiles, um, those people. And so Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. And they were found to be 153,600. And he made 7,000 of them to be bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters in the mountain, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. Now we saw those same numbers, didn't we, and back in verse 2. But here it's just kind of recapping uh, those Uh, workers and those things that were done and so what an amazing thing for for Solomon now just to be interfacing with this king and and um and and again there would be no other kingdom like Solomon's no other greater moment in Israel's history except for the day when the Lord comes back and he comes back and in his second coming and he sets up his thousand-year reign, the millennial reign of Christ. And, 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 and even then, as we look at the millennial reign, it's going to be a much better time than we've ever experienced. But it's not going to be without problems. But the Lord is going to rule at that time for a thousand years with an iron fist. In other words, 
little squabbles that come up, he's going to deal with them immediately. It's not going to be one of these things where it's going to be dragged out in the courts and uh, people are going to be acquitted and, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, court sessions that are delayed for months and years. Everything's going to be dealt with very quickly. But the good news is, is that at the end of that thousand-year reign, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and that is the eternal state of the believer. But to think that this moment in history would be one of the best Israel has ever experienced. And yet God gave him the warning, as we read in Deuteronomy 17. And isn't it true that there's really nothing new under the sun? And apart from God, we are helpless, aren't we? Apart from the Lord, we are bent on evil. We're bent on doing things our own way. And even Solomon, one of the the wisest men in the world, fell prey to what God had told him in advance not to do. And yet God gave him the wisdom to do other things, to understand nature and the intricacies of nature and how things worked. And people from all over the world would come to Solomon and hear his wisdom. And yet the warning was always there. But what a great, what a great time in, in their history. And so we're going to continue in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, going through uh, these nine chapters of Solomon's life, and then we'll get into the other Judean kings. And, and really, from this point, it kind of goes downhill, with the exception of a few great kings like Josiah and Hezekiah and, and a few others. And um, so let's stand. Let's stand and pray. Uh, yes, Father, we thank you for um, thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the warnings that you give us. And Lord, really, we're no different uh, apart from your Spirit, Lord. And even with your Spirit indwelling us, God, the truth of the matter is there's still so much rebellion in us. And Lord, I pray that for myself and for my brothers and sisters here tonight that we would take these things that we hear. And, and even the foreshadowing of Sol- one of so- Solomon's fall, we would take this to heart ourselves because, Lord, we know that we have an enemy who is setting us up. We have an enemy that hates us. We have an enemy that is against us. But, Lord, we're thankful that you are for us and that no one can touch us unless you allow it, Lord. So fill us with your spirit, Lord. Fill us with wisdom. Give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding way beyond our years and experience, Lord. And so thank you for this exhortation, Lord, and may it uh, yield fruit in our life, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.